0: Hello. At the time of recording of this podcast, Richie Sunak is still Prime Minister, and Jeremy Hunt is still a Chancellor of the Exchequer. No resignations or sackings for the last few days. Quite astounding. A strange calm has descended on Westminster after an astonishingly exciting period, for, well, for journalists, that is, did some of them get over-excited. Krishna Murthy has been shown the yellow card by Channel 4 News, after using the C-word about a government interviewee when he thought his microphone had been switched off. By contrast, Martine Croxell, the BBC news presenter, was well aware that she was on air when she was conducting the paper review last Sunday evening on the news channel. She was broadcasting live after she'd just heard that Boris Johnson had pulled out of the Conservative leadership race. Did her comments overstep the mark? At the start of the programme, she said... Well, this is all very exciting, isn't it? Adding, am I allowed to be this gleeful? Well, I am. Towards the end of the programme, when parliamentary journalist Tony Grew made a joke about Boris Johnson, saying, of course, he thinks he's best placed to win an election in 2024. He probably thinks he's best placed to win the American election in 2024. Martine giggled in response and said, I'm probably breaking some terrible due impartiality rule by giggling. The programme attracted criticism on social media, including from Conservative MP Nadine Dorris, who backed Johnson's bid to return as Prime Minister. This lack of impartiality demonstrates how deep-seated the bias is. Others said on Twitter... As an ex-Tory, the intent of someone laughing at Boris doesn't bug me. But BBC, your impartiality used to be legendary. Martin Croxall is a prime example of why I haven't watched you in years and will continue to agitate to defund the BBC. But there were others supportive of Martin Croxall, including LBC's journalists Sheila Fergerty and Ian Dale, who felt it was a journalist relishing the drama of recent political events and a total overreaction. Other listeners expressed a similar sentiment. I watched the paper review live, and Martine's natural enthusiasm for a meant-to-stay-long storyline, culminating in perhaps its biggest breaking news event, was evident. BBC News is reviewing the programme for a potential breach of impartiality as a matter of urgency. The BBC's impartiality, or lack of it, is a constant preoccupation of one of the corporation's most outspoken critics, to whom I spoke last week during the BBC's centenary celebrations, and just before the Martin Croxell and Christian Guru Murthy incidents. Well, I'm now sitting in the offices of the Policy Exchange in Westminster with Charles Moore, Baron Moore, former editor of the Telegraph, both Sunday and Daily Telegraph, and of course the Spectator, and in some people's views, one of the most severe critics of the BBC. And I want to talk to you, Charles, if I may call you that, because. I think there are two Charles Moores. There's this sort of almost objective historian who wrote the brilliant biographies of Mr. Thatcher. And there is the other Charles Moore who seems to be perpetually attacking the BBC in quite extreme terms. Uh, Do you make a distinction between the two, the historian and the journalist, as it were? Certainly. And in fact, there'll be a third entity,
1: which is the editor. Because when you edit, you behave in a different way from when you're a columnist. It's my job as a columnist to argue, so that's what I do. If you're an editor, you're doing something different from that. And if you're a historian, you, you absolutely must be not exactly neutral, but you have to follow quite strict rules about evidence and so on. It's not, you're, you're not trying to stir up something. You're trying to in, look into something and then tell it and interpret it and analyse it. And obviously a columnist is, among other things, a, sort of uh,
0: provocative. Well, you're certainly provocative. I mean, uh, the BBC is like the – sorry, by the way, the knocking is of uh, the next door building. I don't think we can do anything about that. But you're certainly provocative. You say things like uh, the BBC is like the Fox News of the left. And then you see the BBC assumes white people are bad and black people are good. And you say the BBC's mental assumptions are those of the fairly soft left, that American power is a bad thing that whereas the UN is good, that the Palestinians are in the right and Israel isn't, that the war in Iraq was wrong, that the European Union is a good thing, and that people who criticize it are xenophobic. Do you believe all those things, or are you trying to write just a provocative column? All statements made in columns tend to lack
1: qualifications. You've only got X number of words, and you've got to get your point across. But I do believe them, yes. Obviously, the BBC does some things extraordinarily well, and it would be unbelievable if it didn't, given the amount of money it has and the special privileges it has. But it undoubtedly does have a mindset in most of its coverage, which is of a particular type. And by the way, it's not an, by any means a sort of wholly discreditable type. It's a very important part of British culture, but it is a particular approach. And if you're not part of that, you really do feel that it's against you and that it's not doing its job for the licence fee. Sorry,
0: just to be clear, it's broadly a left-liberal position instinctively. Is this what you're saying?
1: Yes, and I think it's a bit of a red herring sometimes when people say about party allegiance. It's really very little to do with that. I mean, I expect there are very few Tories at the top of the BBC.
0: Well, there is the chairman. Uh, yeah, well, the chairman is obviously the one who gets put in yes. for that purpose. Well, the director-general was a, uh, was a the Conservative councillor, and you have Robbie Gibb, of course, who was... Uh, Indeed, but then you can, you can name them. You can name yeah. them literally on the fingers of one hand. Well, that's a fair
1: number of people at the top of the pyramid. No, not really, because people on the board are a very different matter from people who run it every day. And I think there's a series of received ideas and have been all my life in the BBC. It's got worse, I think, which mean that a very wide range of views are excluded or treated in a very different way from the views which are the BBC views. And... Therefore, it's actually difficult for the BBC to understand. My objection is not so much that X is a bad view. I think the BBC has real difficulty in understanding quite a lot of things about the world and in our country because it's really
0: only got one view. Well, you see, what I have difficulty with you on this, Charles, and I'd like to explore a little later some of those views that you think it has, is that I, having worked for the BBC for 20 years as a member of staff and off and on for another, say, 20, 30 years, I don't think the BBC as such has a single view. I think there are a range of views, and I think if you were to say that it's over-metropolitan, I would say that's true, although it's making efforts to deal with that. If I say that it's largely populated by younger people who tend to be left liberal, I would agree with that you would also say that it's operating on a very highly regulated system, and a lot of its editors are certainly not left liberal and are there to ensure or try to ensure that people's political prejudices don't get through. So they may not do that very well, but the idea there is a single BBC view I find rather strange. I think
1: it's obviously quite a loose way of putting it, but I do think it's basically true. I think you can predict the BBC... Reaction in the way it covers a piece of news and, to some extent, in the dramas it puts on and that sort of thing and the way it makes documentaries, which will be roughly 90% of the time identifiable with that general view. So, for example, it's often to do with what question do you ask and, which, and what question do you not ask, I think, in news coverage and documentary coverage. So, for example, every day on something like the Today programme, PM, World at One... Certain things will be brought up and the assumption about government policy is that it's always a bad thing if the government is spending less money on something or is not spending enough money on something. Now, that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make, but there is a whole other side of the argument, which is about how much tax people are paying, which almost never gets treated as an outrage. So, so you get... to
0: acknowledge that about the 1970s, when I look back at my own career in the BBC, I actually, actually see very much what you said, the assumption that as a journalist you identified a problem, government solved it usually by spending. I think that that was... But then I was a much younger person then, and there were very tough editors above me. I'm not sure you can make that case after the 80s, 90s or whatever, can you, that that's an instinctive approach? I think very very much, because
1: one of the things that is very apparent, is a great problem in modern life generally, not just the BBC, is the power of pressure groups to decide what can get into coverage. And so, for example, on all green issues, it's inor- the coverage is enormously driven by what the green pressure groups say. Their attitudes are treated um, reverentially and uncritically to a large extent and the sceptics are treated almost as lunatics. And indeed, there was a period when it was announced by the BBC that Nigel Lawson, who wrote an excellent book questioning uh, green climate change ideas, it was announced that he, after all, a pretty distinguished man, uh, whatever you think of him, couldn't go on to be treated like, as an equal with a, with a green no, sh- spokesman. Sh- who,
0: sh- who, sh- who Surely that is a different situation here. Nigel Lawson would be a, an ideal person to talk about the political and perhaps about the business consequences of climate change. But he was not and is not a climate change scientist. And if the vast, vast majority of scientists in the field say something it's rather strange to put up against them someone who is not a scientist. That with the BBC would say there needs to be due impartiality here.
1: No, I don't agree with that because the scientists have no restraint about making what are essentially policy and political positions about which they derive from their science. If it's a purely scientific argument, of course you'd be right. If it's a scientific argument, you can't put a scientist up against a non-scientist. But it's not. What's going on in Greece is highly political and it derives from political views, which are usually on the left, and are quite often anti-Western, anti-growth,
0: anti-industrial. And
1: this is not investigated by the
0: BBC. I have to stop you a moment, because I've heard people refer to BBC as being part of an anti-growth conspiracy. Well, certainly not a conspiracy, but yes. it's a way of that, looking. That, that. that phrase is used, and conspiracy implies something conscious. Let me make it absolutely clear. I
1: do not believe in conspiracy in this stuff. I believe in in
0: groupthink, which is different. You think there's a sort of default setting? Yes. So people aren't aware they're biased?
1: Yes. And it's very, very marked with the particular coverage. I mean, uh, Roger Harabin, who until recently was the environment analyst, so-called, of the BBC, was almost directly propaganda the whole time for green ideas and never gave serious consideration to criticisms of them. And also... I think, used news stories, and I think this happens with Justin Rowlett as well and others, really all they are is the mouthpiece for a particular... They say, scientists say, experts say, experts warn, climate meteorologists warn, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, some of this is legitimate and it's all important stuff and it should be got across, but it is presented in a completely different way and treated in a completely different way from ordinary news
0: because the critical faculty is not applied. Uh, they would say, and they were high and are highly respected in, by many people, but they would say they are representing the vast majority of climate scientists and that the problem with your position, in a sense, is that it might have been reasonable, say, 10 years ago, when there was, or 15 years ago, when there was wider debate, but I suspect they would say that largely that debate has now been decided by scientists.
1: Yes, but they would be wrong because... First of all, I think, though absolutely I'm no scientist, there clearly is a lot of things in here which are quite imponderable. But the particular thing that concerns me is about policy. And policy is always, to some extent, political. And what's going on with net zero is the attempt to impose an artificial timetable on a thing which is actually extremely amorphous. It's not the case. It can't be proved that if X isn't done by 2050, you know, the world will come to an end or anything like it. So the choice of the date and the, and the choice of the programme and the legislation by which it's enforced is political and to some extent arbitrary, and it's not objective. It's a particular
0: desire to do this in a particular way. Now, this might... Right, Could I just check? Are you suggesting that, if you like, BBC journalists are not sufficiently sceptical, yes. which is one thing, or are you argue that, in effect, they've signed up to a particular policy position? I think
1: the first is certainly true, and the second is sometimes true.
0: Now, if this is true, if your analysis of, of the BBC in terms of climate change and in other areas is correct, how do you change that? I mean, it was said that uh, some people in government wished you to be chairman of the BBC. You decided, for personal reasons, not to put yourself forward. But if you were analysing what needed to be done, what do you suggest it had you been chairman? Well, I think, and, and Tim... Tim Davy, the BBC Director General. Yes, I
1: wouldn't want to talk about what I would have done because I hadn't any idea whether I would even have been chairman if I had applied, so I, I don't want to get into that territory. But so what areas would he say? Tim Davy is the, the current Director General, has quite rightly emphasised the importance of impartiality, which is absolutely core to the whole
0: to all the rights and privileges which the BBC possesses. Due, due impartiality. I mean, I think we have to make the distinction between... If you said to me, there's two people here, one says it's dark and the other says light, I look outside, it's light, I say it's light. I don't have to be impartial between that. It's due impartiality. Yes, of course, yeah. Yes.
1: But I think that's been gra- gravely, gravely neglected.
0: And, and do you see any signs that Tim Davies' actions are having an effect from your point of view?
1: Yes, some. Some. But what sort of amuses me, really, is that all he can really do, at so far at least, is put a certain break on things. You can still feel the immense pressure of the BBC journalists wanting to say a particular thing and not quite being able to say it because they know they've got that rule there. So, for example, the antipathy to Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister coming through the BBC was absolutely overwhelming, and indeed all the way going back to the referendum campaign. It's quite interesting on your point here because... The BBC, during the referendum campaign, I think, behaved pretty well, because what they had to do then was there were very strict rules, very strict, you know, as there are for elections, about exactly how much time you... And they followed that. But as soon as the result happened, whoom, the hatred of Brexit and the... The bias about who they got on what programme, you know, the number of people who were on any questions who were anti-Brexit compared with pro, the attempt to stop Brexit by all sorts of devices, the support for people like... Why
0: well, are you suggesting the BBC tried to stop Brexit? Well, of course it doesn't do it as a... And then, what is this BBC? The thing is, our having word for it. I, it's not a single entity. It's a range of people have different views that they all subscribe to or say they subscribe to doctors impartiality so when you say the bbc view I, I, there isn't one well th- we've been over this ground already in this conversation and i and i
1: disagree there isn't an order going through the bbc that says this is the line you've got to take there's a way of thinking about life and you know whenever i write about this i get enormous response from people mainly who don't live in london who agree because they feel i'm uh, basically rural in my life and for example, people who live in the countryside feel the BBC just doesn't understand how they live. But it's also, it involves political views,
0: too. It does, but also involves the fact that you know, everything is centered on London. Most people who work for the organisation are still in news and current space are in London. They live in the suburbs. I agree with you that they have a lack of understanding, but I think it's not just the BBC or of country life and so on. But I, my criticism of the BBC's coverage of, of Brexit would be that it didn't take a range of difficult subjects, and explore, them. for example, the word sovereignty, what it meant, mm-hmm. and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, and what happens often in general election, I think it BBC pulls in its horns a little in order to survive. But anyway, let's assume that you're right. Is it the BBC worth saving and capable of being saved?
1: Well, it's a very interesting question, and it's actually, to be honest, one that I can never quite make up my mind about the BBC which I think is sort of technically 100 this week has incredible achievements to its name and continues to have them and there's marvellous things on it and um, and it's very well known and respected in many ways across the world and so on so it's perverse to say right that that's it all out but it is actually a wrongly constituted body and it's one that is unsustainable in modern times. What is unsustainable, the funding or the organisation? Yes. Or can you separate the two? Not really. I mean, the funding, because... And the whole idea of a controlled, single national broadcaster is the most peculiar idea in a free society. And if it was starting now, it would never happen. Because it's in the essence of a free society that it has multiple competing media. Now, we do have that now, but the BBC has a unique privileged position which works against that, and therefore it's a great sort of upas tree under which others die. You
0: see, Charles, some people would say, actually, if we started from scratch, we wouldn't have a House of Lords, which you're now a member of, would we? Sure, you're right. Well, yes, <laughs> but these, we've got them, and the question is whether they can be adapt to serve our society. And you obviously think the House of Lords can, or you wouldn't have accepted becoming a peer. Do you think the BBC can adapt?
1: I think it would have a chance of doing so, if it really, really did uphold its impartiality, which, as I say, Tim B- Davy is trying to do, but I think from a fairly weak position. But I do think the technology is against it. I think it's very hard to see how this is going to be sustained. I mean, I don't know anybody under the age of 30, maybe under the age of 40, who pays a BBC television licence. By the way, do, do you pay it?
0: Yes, I do, yes, yeah. Because you said you wouldn't pay it and were prepared to
1: go to prison, but you've revised your view. I refuse to pay my television license because of Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand insulting poor Andrew Sachs on their program. And I said I would not pay the license until they sacked them. And I didn't. And I was fined in the magistrate's court uh, for this. And then they did sack them. Uh, So, And to my great annoyance, I had to pay BBC costs of about £500, as well as the fine of 250 or something um so i appeared in hastings magistrates court
0: but on the question of the license fee are you but you're opposed to that in principle yes i am so any future of the bbc that you might consider and i hope we'll have time to talk a little bit about it would be predicated on the license fee being phased out yes but you made a valid point earlier about how
1: you know you've got something you need to be so rather than saying right no license fee that's the end you would need to work towards different ways of doing it. And it may be that you can't do that
0: because of my point about plurality. But if you assume that the BBC is a means to an end and all means have to change, but the end is public service broadcasting, do you believe in public service broadcasting in principle? Now, there's a role for it. So the means may change, but there is a need for it, not least in the case, for example, of market failure.
1: Yes, I do believe in the virtues of public service broadcasting. I'm not convinced that... They can only be delivered by the BBC. And indeed, we know that they can't only be delivered by the BBC because public service broadcasting rules apply to other organisations as well. But they
0: involve form. public service broadcasting does involve a form of regulation which obviously does not apply to other media. Do you think there's still a role for that? Well, I would put it this way, that I think there's a lot of bits of public service
1: broadcasting which are very good. And therefore, anybody who's changing the system needs to bear that in mind and make sure that they are not compromised, but I don't think the current system can go on for very long. I mean, it survived. I mean, I say that, but I looked up the other day, and I, the first article I ever wrote about how the licence fee couldn't survive I wrote 40 years ago. <laughs> so, um, so uh, but, 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 Well, yes, except now I think
0: it really is changing because of the technology, which it wasn't at all like that then. What really surprises me about you, Charles, because I, I associate you with a person who cares passionately about the story of England and our history and so on. And I thought, therefore, you'd be the sort of person who wished to ensure that our children and society generally understands where we've come from, the role, for example, that Christianity has played in this country, and that you would think this was an essential part of being British and also for people who come to this country and immigrants to understand how this country has become what it is. If you take that view, Don't you have to have some sort of public service that ensures that is part of broadcasting in this country, that there's a space for that? And also, as you suggest, a space for minority views that perhaps perhaps would be crowded out of other media.
1: Yes, but what gets credited out of the BBC is ma- majority views. You know, you can't get, it's very,
0: very hard to get a programme in the BBC which is anti immigration. For example, you could do. Forgive me on this to interrupt because I just want to pursue this point about what we hand on to our children yeah. and what we hope that they will understand and what we think is necessary for our society to understand about itself. You believe, I share your belief about the importance, for example, of the Christian church in that, and understand how it to a degree made this country. If the BBC doesn't exist, if there isn't a requirement for religious programming, however poorly carried out or whatever, who's going to do that? Who's going to ensure that our society and our children understand this? Well, religious
1: programming is a good example, actually, because I think it's, um, except in the presentation of some services, actual church services, worse than useless, because, again, it reflects a a particular bbc group think so it's very resistant
0: to the idea of faith itself as a matter of fact but that's a criticism of the way it's carried out it's no, it, well, but i am saying good. to you will the market no. Do you honestly think the market would can replace that uh,
1: uh, well it would do it differently but for example you couldn't have on the bbc a pro-catholic program or a pro-evangelical program because that would be said you know bias etc etc so people trying to persuade you to believe in God in a particular
0: way are not really allowed on... Yes, but don't you welcome that? Because you know, there are plenty of other media where that can happen. Don't you want somewhere which, of course, ensures that Catholic, Roman Catholic and, and evangelical views are expressed and, and people try to understand them, but without giving them a platform, if you like, to proselytize? Well, I think it's
1: quite odd, actually. I think it is strange that they don't do that. Because what it means, again, is you get a particular point
0: of view that the BBC decides is the right one, and that's wrong. I feel very frustrated with parts of the BBC, but I don't ever imagine, I can never remember them having a view about what is right and what is wrong. They have a regulated system in which proselytising is forbidden, where you're not allowed as... No, but you could proselytise... So I remember having this argument years and years ago
1: with the BBC Religious Programme about... I went to a conference, BBC Religious Programme, I mean, a very long time ago, and AIDS was just getting going. And they all sat around congratulating themselves for how brave they'd been in making programs in favor of AIDS victims. I'm complete religious programs. I'm completely in favour of them being Understanding is not in favour of. No, no, no. No, no. What I mean is what fascinated me was their mentality. They thought they were being brave. Actually they were all saying the same thing. And the brave thing is when you confront your colleagues, not the wider world. What they would never have given countenance to would be traditional accounts that were hostile to homosexual acts, for example, of religious beliefs. that They would never, ever have given space. Now, I'm not saying those beliefs are right, but I'm interested by how they, they couldn't even conceive that they would have given space to such beliefs,
0: yet those are the beliefs of all the mainstream traditional faiths in the world. What you're saying consistently is the BBC is out of touch, in your view, not just with different minorities throughout the country, but probably with the mainstream. I think so, Yes. Yes,
1: particularly in class terms. So if, um, And that's why the Brexit thing was so... Because, of course, more graduates were against Brexit and more non-graduates were for Brexit. And that sort of thing is reflected all the time in, in the way the BBC covers things.
0: So do you want the BBC to survive in some form? You don't want the licence fee to survive. But if the BBC comes up with... People are now talking about it. A smaller licence fee, which guarantees perhaps a new service and services perhaps for minorities, children of the deaf, and so on. And then a set of subscription packages where people can say, it's not technically possible, but it will be, we'll pay for this, we'll pay for that. Would you be happy if the BBC moved in that direction? I think it probably will have to, and
1: that could work. So, for example, just as a consumer, suppose I could subscribe to Radio 4, which you can't, but suppose I could, I would and I would subscribe to Radio 3, and I wouldn't subscribe to Radio 1, and, I, and so on. And um, I think that the technical problems are quite formidable in all of this, but I think that
0: might be a, a way to go. But the argument always is that ultimately in subscription, people seek out, or those who provide the service, seek out the most profitable. And that actually what your concern is in some ways about the minority views would probably be rather less profitable. And how do you ensure in a subscription service that the minorities do have access? Well, because the BBC is a sort of state, though at arm's length, organisation,
1: it finds it very hard to imagine how markets and choice actually works. But in fact, Britain is very successful at having very powerful independent institutions which represent certain interests. So, for example, the National Trust has 5.7 million members and we subscribe to the National Trust and I think a family of National Trusting costs a little bit less than the BBC licence fees, £130 a year or something. And I don't see in principle why comparable numbers of people
0: might not pay for Radio 4, for example. But aren't you concerned about those who wouldn't pay? Eh? Those people who you want to reach out, you want to... Inc- not inculcate is the wrong word, but you want them to understand what they are inheriting by being born into yes, this Yes, but country. I don't think that's well done by the BBC. No, but, it, but it, who's going to do it if the BBC doesn't? Well,
1: I, don't, I think there's a great interest in history, which can be fostered in um, the private sector or indeed the charitable sector or a mixture of the two. And people haven't begun to, very seriously, to work this out. I mean, I fully acknowledge that these things are difficult. I'm not saying there's a clever answer to this. But I think it has to go that way because, first of all, the BBC doesn't do its duty and,
0: secondly, it is... Technologically, its form of funding is technologically dying. So, if I asked you to, uh, on its 100th anniversary, to give three cheers for the BBC, I know you wouldn't do that. Would you give even one cheer? Yes, I would, because um, I might even give two. Because, as I've said,
1: I mean, if you have this monopoly right and this extraordinary privilege to take money off everybody, you waste a huge amount of money, but you will be able to attract talent. And it's done that, and it continues to do that. And in my view, it grossly over. It breaks its charter responsibilities really by overindulging talent, so that there's a sort of cult of personality which I detest on the BBC. But nevertheless, there's very, very good people, and there always have been. And you know, if I think of my own childhood, particularly in relation to comedy, you know, where
0: would I have been without Dad's Army or, what, or whatever it might have been? Or... But that's the past. So for the future, you've two cheers. Well, I think it sounds more like one and a half, to be honest. Uh, but let's say two cheers to the BBC. But do you think, in twenty years' time, that it will have a central place in British life? I wouldn't like to put a year on it. All, all I notice is that it is,
1: its role is declining, and that's only partly
0: its fault. It's partly just the way that everything's going in media. So when in Dad's Army the catchphrase is you, we're all doomed. <laughs> you, you think the BBC perhaps is... Uh, it? <laughs> well, it's it certainly adapt or die. And your verdict on this administration, on uh, the present DG and the present chairman, are they adapting?
1: I think they're trying to. But he has, like all bureaucracies, and there's no, almost no more powerful bureaucracy in the BBC, it's tremendously resistant. So essentially what the people in that organisation who try to execute the orders is they try not to execute the orders if it's a serious change. So, um, and, you know, that's what the civil service does. I mean, that's how bureaucracies work. And so I would be somewhat pessimistic. I'm very supportive of what Tim Davies is trying to do, but I'd be
0: somewhat pessimistic about his likely success. Charles Burr. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roger. And that's it for this week. Next week, in the run-up to COP27, I'll be talking to David Shukman, who, as the BBC science editor, attended last year's COP26. Was it difficult for him to be impartial? And remember, please do subscribe and support our podcast. By subscribing on Patreon for a mere £5 per month, the price of a couple of cappuccinos, you'll be keeping our podcast ad-free and hopefully securing our future. Remember, do get in touch on Twitter by using at Beeb roger, or you can send an email to roger at com. And just so you know, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and produced by Kate Dixon. It was a good egg production. Please do listen in again next week. Until then, goodbye.